It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today we're talking 8-0 wins, 8-0 thrashings and what they both mean for Newcastle and Sheffield United. We'll also be taking a look at the other promoted teams and another dismal performance from Chelsea. Joining me, Tom Clark, for all of that, we've got two of the finest football writers in the country, Alison Rudd and Tom Allnut, and our favourite former footballer, no, not Tony Cascarino. It's Gregor Roberts. <laughs> How many times have I done that gag already? You need this a new one, definitely. Yeah, I definitely. Need, I know. I was panicking. I was like, need a gag, need a gag. I'll do the old ex-footballer one. It's fine. Yeah, but already nearly October, and I've done it at least three times. Never mind. New gags, but also new topics because we also move to North London. The big one, the most exciting, the most scintillating, the most hotly anticipated derby in Premier League history. Well, at least since the last one, anyway. Uh, I want to talk about that, guys, because Alison and Tom, you were both there for us uh, reporting on the game. Before we get into the action and what it all means, did this feel like a different type of derby? And what I mean by that is Martin Samuel in his Sunday Times column wrote that this was the first North London derby for a while where there wasn't a clear team in the ascendancy. It wasn't like, oh, we know how this is going to go. And so it proved the result with the 2-2 result, of course. But did it feel like that before the game? Did it feel like it had two happy sets of fans, two happy camps, Alison? Oh, yeah, it's like being in a cult. It's ridiculous, really. I mean, they were all so ecstatic. Now, bear in mind, you are a Liverpool fan, so don't be going too hard on the cult thing. It's just, it's just too early. But, There's yeah. nothing culty about Liverpool. Liverpool is what it is. It hasn't artificially manufactured it. <laughs> Let's talk about North London. Anyway. Though, shall we? <laughs> anyway, back anyway, to North London. You asked me how it felt, and it felt like I was in a cult. So, yes, Arsenal fans, deliriously happy and optimistic. The travelling fans, deliriously happy and optimistic, and the Spurs players did their thing where they go to the away fans and applaud them for being there. And there was none of that grumbling you'd get because you you used to get it because emotions do get heightened for the derby. And if it doesn't pan out the way you fervently hope, then you would you'd sort of it was tangible the distress levels. But there was none of that actually, even though. There were mistakes galore. I mean, I did sort of occasionally look on X to see what the mood was amongst the people. And there was a lot of people saying, uh, you know, this is the greatest North London derby for decades because the quality is so fantastic and they're both attacking teams. I didn't think the quality was that amazing. There were a lot of errors. I thought it was error strewn, in fact. And the goals were all kind of weird. They were the result of mistakes. And um, But the, the adventure from both teams... Uh, was almost equal, I think. They have slightly different ways of doing it. Uh, Spurs are more chaotic than Arsenal. But that in itself led to a goal. The the sense of, oh, you know, uh, Kulisewski at one point was on his own on attacking down the right and the chaos of Spurs meant he had not a single Spurs player to pass to and he sort of gave up because he didn't know what to do and, and from that point Arsenal scored it's it was uh, sl- slight mayhem but uh, overall it was a pleasurable derby because it wasn't built on nastiness uh, and Ketia's foul aside it, it, it wasn't built on anger and resentment and one-upmanship there was a sense of who's going to play the most attracting fo- attacking football the most attractive football I combine those two words and so so that made it um I suppose in inverted commas a special derby but it was it wasn't quite the aesthetic classic that some 
some pundits are saying. Pleasurable mayhem then. Tom, before we get into some of the things Alison talked about, you've you've covered football in Spain before, some big derbies over there. Did, did How did this feel going into it? Did Do you agree with Alison that it was kind of two happy camps? Yeah, two happy camps. Right? I think that for a long time this has been the best fixture in the Premier League. You know, I think if you look at the kind of derbies now that we have, the City United one feels so unbalanced. Liverpool Everton has been, you know, a foregone conclusion for a long time. I think this one has delivered even even through the spells where Arsenal and Spurs have kind of been up and down. I think this singular fixture has, has tended to had tended to deliver pretty well. I think there was a period where, you know, early, you know, Pochettino years where it felt like Spurs are very much in the ascendancy. And then in the last three or four years with kind of the Mourinho Conte years for Spurs, it's very much been Arsenal's kind of game. And I guess the difference for this one that it felt like you had two teams who were both prepared to kind of play attacking football, um, very much wanted to kind of be on the front foot. And I think the key, it felt like an even game, I felt. But at the end, the sense in the stadium was very much that Spurs were happy with the result. You know, the, the Arsenal fans were kind of shuffling out slightly. Do you think so? Because I, I was, I was in the office um, editing yesterday, and I, I kind of got the sense that towards the end of the game, it was Tottenham in the ascendancy. I don't know whether it was because of the nature of the way the goals were scored, but it was. It looked to me like, oh, if one team's going to win this, it was Tottenham. But you think actually they were perhaps the happier team? Well, I mean, I think both of those things can be true. You know, I think Spurs in the second half probably did just about look like the team who were, who, were, who looked like they could go and win the game I, th- I mean I think to be fair Arsenal as well had their moments in the last kind of 10 minutes or so Arsenal also you know had a had a good spell I, I don't think it was one of those we thought oh, you know Spurs really should have won the game it was mm. it was an even contest overall but I think by the end Tottenham came away from the game thinking we played at the Emirates our own way you know we took the game to them we had the ball you know, had more possession for for a large spells of the match created good chances they weren't outplayed by Arsenal and if you kind of rewind to last year where Spurs for example were playing at home they lost 2-0 to Arsenal and Arsenal didn't even get out of second gear you know they just kept the ball the whole game and Spurs didn't even really take part in the contest that was the bigger picture here for Tottenham wasn't just the result it was is this a Spurs team under Postacoglu who can compete with the big teams you know we've seen them in these kind of opening games play well and it looks promising but when they came up against a real top team like Arsenal could they deliver with the Postacoglu way survive and and even more than that would the players kind of persevere you know we saw that there were some errors they went behind twice you know would they would they get rattled and and let the kind of crowd get on top of them but they didn't you know and they kept playing kept doing the things that Postacoglu wanted them to do so I think yes you know 2-2 was a good result for them but the bigger picture for Tottenham was they feel like they're in the going in the right direction, whereas Arsenal, I think, probably think this was two points dropped. Yeah. But to answer your question, Tom, I, I disagree with you about the feeling that Spurs might be the ones to, to, to snatch <coughs> it because as soon as Son and Madison went off, and the fact they went off in tandem, it it just killed the mm. it killed the vibe for them. They looked, and, and even though it wasn't done for this reason, it made it look like they were settling for the draw. Hey, my mate Richarlison nearly scored. Let's not forget that super sub that he is. But um. Lots of different strands there that I could pick up on. I want to start with Ange Postacoglu and you, Gregor, because some of the themes that Tom talked about there in his answer, um, sticking to a way of playing, not being afraid of big games and big occasions, these are things that you highlighted as a Celtic fan, having watched his career in the preview show. You said this is what it's going to be. He's going to stick to it. How, you know, How good is it to see a manager do that and be rewarded? But I also wanted to touch on slightly his comments after the game with the handball and all armless defenders and stuff. First little glimpse of the ha- not so always happy man, Ange. But it's first, like, first, firstly on the player side and then on the reaction. Yeah, look, Tom, Tom's right. I think, and that the thing that they said about Spurs was that they're not going to change. And you know, we kind of knew that. But as you're saying, you're coming up against a top team and the biggest game of the season, and they sort of they did they played the way, the way that they want to play and went toe-to-toe with Arsenal and so that's why I think they come away from it feeling better and I think Ange like, it's funny I spoke, one of my one of my kind of Celtic supporting friends was messaging me after this and uh, sorry before this game and saying that like you know kind of Spurs fans are falling in love with, with Postacoglu and, and you know there's a bit of a bit of a heartache about that from Celtic's point of view we love him first but also, we loved him first but also kind of it, it reflects well on Celtic too if 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 he goes there and and, and as a success because every time someone someone goes player or manager from the SPL from this from the Scottish Premiership to the the Premier League it's like there's always a question mark a caveat about them but we've already seen that he's a hugely talented manager as a man manager in terms of his personality and as a coach and because of the way that Spurs are playing so 
Like, there's no, there's no question about that. But the, on, on, on but, that reaction, then, yeah, like because he also, you know, in a suit as well, he dressed up for the North London derby for his big day. He's done lots of exasperated actions on the touchline, throwing his arms up in the air. It's meant to be Mister Cool, Mister Nice Guy. No, I mean he can certainly pick up on things that he feels are, uh, you know, when Michael Grant raised a few in his in his preview. There was one where uh, Michael Beale said that he's a lucky man. When he when he was uh, when he joined Rangers, he's, you know he's a very lucky man because there's there's an imbalance in terms of resources. But he kept chipping away at that that comment for several weeks afterwards, saying I'm a lucky guy, kind of, you know, uh, kind of. Right. So he has got that in his locker, uh, and I think he was absolutely right. I think the handball rule is a, is a not a pen for you. Complete madness now the handball rule. Not on the rule, but a pen, not a penalty. Well, it isn't. It isn't. Because of the rules, but the rules are an ass. I mean, like if you look at Anthony Gordon's in uh, in the Newcastle game, because he wasn't the man, the player who scored the goal, but he set up someone for a tapping. I think it was Longstaff. Mm. That doesn't that doesn't count. And because 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 his, his, uh, Romero's arm is in a natural deemed an unnatural position. That it's it's the rule is crazy for me I, I just I think that the handball law needs to be looked at desperately guys on Ange then in the press conferences what have you made of him so far what did you make of him this the big game Alison I thought the suit was a mistake because <laughs> it was a bit baggy and tyre was a bit short wasn't it it, was, it didn't look great it didn't look great and it did I tell you what it looked like it looked like he'd put a tracksuit on and his wife had said <laughs> hey mate, isn't this isn't this a big game? Yeah, and he thought, oh god, all right then, and just put on some suit that hadn't been to the dry cleaners, and he'd had to take it out the laundry basket, so it was a bit crumpled, and he hadn't worn it for six years, so it didn't quite fit him properly. Um, but it, I, I don't know, adds to his quaintness, maybe. I think we're still getting used to him. We're just not used to a character like this. We still love him, just to be clear for we anyone like, who's we like, listening. No, we like we like his difference. Yeah. We love his difference, but he does. At most pressers, he'll he does listen to the questions, and he does he is he he does pick up on something that he might find slightly insulting or slightly negative, and then throw it back at the questioner, even if it wasn't or a joke meant about to be. It. Yeah, in a jokey on, way, and then he seems. keeps it going. You know, he he clearly doesn't. Not only would he hold a big grudge, he'll hold thousands of tiny, tiny ones as well. It's it's <laughs> man after my own heart. Uh, I like no, it. he's 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 fun. Uh, get the impression he's largely honest and doesn't play games with the media but you'd know did he play games in Scotland I don't know if you'd call it game playing him referring to slights I think that's just a way of making sure he keeps himself sharp and motivated and reminding people that I don't think he plays games I think he's straight up he's as straight up as they come I think as you say he holds certain kind of micro grudges but they're not he always does it in a sort of you know jokey way yeah um like his impact has been been remarkable. I think mm. this game underlined that. Back to the game then, um, Alison. You talked about substitutions with Son and Madison going off. I want to talk about those players shortly, but substitutions that seem pretty pivotal for me is Declan Rice going off at half time. A substitution that flew under the radar in the office with all those games. James and I were trying to keep track <laughs> so much so that when uh, Jorginho made the mistake, I was shouting, "Oh my God, Declan Rice in the biggest game of the season has <laughs> done a massive cock!" I was like, "Oh no, actually, it's Jorginho. When did he go off?" <laughs> Tom, you've written the news piece about Declan Rice's injury. How serious, just quickly, do we think it is? I mean, Arteta said after the match that he's hoping it's not too serious. Um, he did also say that it's unusual for Rice to kind of flag a, a back complaint, you know, during a match and come off in that kind of game. So we assume it's you know more than a niggle. Um, but I guess they'll, they'll do tests today and we'll find out more. Yeah. Do you think that that change was pivotal? Because you know, you'd imagine Rice wouldn't make that mistake, but of course, who knows? We talked before on Thursday's show, Gregor and I, with um, Johnny and Martin Samuel about the idea of substituting goalkeepers and making changes and things. This felt a little bit like, to me, a bit disjointed, Mikel Arteta. Not quite good tweaking, bad tweaking. Enforced tweaking, of course. But did it slightly um, leave Arsenal a little bit messy, it felt, in that second half? Yeah, I think it did. And I I don't think it's necessarily a coincidence after half-time that the kind of mistake happened very quickly. Maybe Jorginho was... Getting to you know the, the pace of the game uh, wasn't quite kind of uh, you know ready for the sort of the pressure that you know he was being put under in that situation. Um, I mean, I think also Arsenal got a lot of injuries at the moment. There aren't many teams in the league, I don't think, who would be able to kind of resort to their third defensive midfielder and you know have someone better than Jorginho. I mean, you know they're already obviously without Thomas Partey as well. So 
I guess you could say they're they're being stretched pretty thinly. Um, I mean, I think Arsenal are at the moment looking like a team who are being experimented with a bit. You know, play, people are playing different positions. In Ketia and Jesus, for example, starting up front because Trossard had to pull out last minute. You know, Martinelli already injured. Mm. Some of this is kind of Arteta trying to evolve the team. You know, with with David Raya, for example, and Ramsdale. Mm. But there also some of it is, is enforced. You know, and. I mean, I think, you know, Alison wrote a good piece about Raya as well yesterday. And I think he played well and did some great saves. But equally, he looked like someone who was also kind of getting used to the players around him. You know, his distribution wasn't perfect. He was being put under pressure. He wasn't quite as seamless, I don't think, as he was for Brentford last season. So I think we're seeing a kind of an Arsenal side who are still kind of finding their rhythm, finding their sort of fluency with each other. Yeah, you teed me up perfectly. Alison, why Arteta opts to play the Raya way? That mm-hmm. was your piece of uh, commentary and analysis from the game yesterday. Tell us more about it and what you observed. Well, I just thought he was... Well, if, when you ta- my task at the North London Derby was to spot a theme. So I don't really write till the, the end of the game. And the most eye-catching player was Raya, I thought. Because there is something about the way... M- most, most... I mean, there is a trend against this, but most goalkeepers still, when they have possession of the ball, you know, they look left, right, straight ahead, and then they then they play around with the ball for a bit and then they waste time and then they think about it a bit more. He doesn't even think about it. He acts completely almost on instinct because he's, he's surveyed where people are going to be and so he releases the ball really quickly which which sets the tone for the whole of the, the attack and it sets the tone for the team, I believe. He just wants to get things moving and I feel that that's what... That's what Arteta wants from his keeper now is for him to be more instrumental in setting the tone of this is an attacking aggressive team and you know like stressing their superiority just by him being there almost and I, I, I agree with Tom this wasn't his most perfect game in terms of distribution but I've watched a lot of him I watched a lot of him at Brentford and it's like you know, it's no coincidence that Brentford looked blooming awful against Everton this weekend. It's not just because Tony's not there. It wasn't just because Rico Henry was injured. It's because they are they are having to get to grips with not having Raya there. It's like having an extra half a player on the pitch because he he does two jobs. He's he acts like um a clever defender with his distribution and also he's a very very good shot stopper as well so you're getting you're just getting more for your buck with him there on 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 the team and also I spoke to him about what sort of keeper he is and he talks more than most I mean lots of keepers are vocal of course but they're vocal in a sort of warning sense just letting defenders know they're in the wrong place or where they should be but he, he actually will be vocal in terms of where he thinks players should be moving up in an attack he's, he's like having a coach on the pitch mm. now if you look at the way Arteta coaches from the sidelines he, he's a very agitated coach and he's constantly barking things to players and you can sense his frustration that he can't actually physically communicate with every single one of his players and having Raya there allows him to do that Raya will often jog to the touchline because he's, he's near the halfway line most of the time anyway so he, he'll go to the dug, dugout and he'll take an instruction off the manager jog back and execute that it's it's for Arteta it's like he's got a version you know like a avatar of himself there on the pitch doing doing saying the things he wants to be said sort of like a, like a medium almost so it's it's like and I sort of concluded my piece by saying I don't believe he is going to start rotating between Ramsdale and Raya because having Raya there is a, almost a status symbol. It's it's letting people know that Arsenal think they're ready to go the next stage and win silverware. Because if you're a big club, you don't face as many shots. You don't have to rely on someone just for their shot-stopping skills. You re- it, you're you not going to be as busy, and therefore, if you're not busy, earn your money by doing other things as well, which is clever and quick distribution and being vocal. It's because a Ramsdale, though, I mean, did you see his... Ex- Kind of exaggerated applause for when uh, he saved Brendan Johnson's shot. Mm. <laughs> no <laughs> doubt he'll be, a, like, he'll, be a, he'll be a team player. But I, I wanted to, it's a subject we've talked about a lot. We discussed it. We all picked Raya if we were going to choose a goalkeeper last Monday. We then talked about substituting goalkeepers on Thursday. Tom, I want to finish this topic with you because David Raya is someone you interviewed in the summer when this move wasn't confirmed. But uh, he talked about, I'm ready for the next step. I want silverware, as Alison said. 
You also wrote a piece in the Sunday Times about Arsenal potentially rotating Raya and Ramsdale. A, tell us about David Raya from what you know from meeting him. Do you agree with those characteristics that Alisson picked out? And then finally, the final word on you, is he Arsenal's number one now, really? I think it's, it's interesting because when Arsenal signed Ramsdale, they signed him in part because they thought he was a really good character, someone who had overcome a lot of adversity in his career. And I think you can see similar themes there with with David Ray. You know, he's a lot of what he did. You know, he moved to England. You know, in his teenage years, played at Blackburn, uh, did a loan spell in in, in Stockport, Southport. Southport, Southport. That's right. Yeah. And I think they thought, wow, this guy. You know, he's you know he's gone through the kind of steps that you need to go through to kind of you know become a real top goalkeeper, not only technically but mentally as well. And you could tell that, you know, speaking to him last summer, he was as much as a player can do without kind of being unprofessional, agitating for, for the next move, you know, for, for the next step. And I think, you know, he was being linked with Tottenham, for example, and Spurs eventually went for Vicario, but they were very interested in him. I think Manchester United were kind of looking at him. So everyone was aware of him. And I think, you know, Arsenal also saw a market opportunity. You know, I mean, look at Manchester United signing Anana, you know, for, what was it, 70-odd million, you know? And if you got have someone like David Raya who's, who's available for, for, for 30-odd, then, you know, and you can improve your team by 10%, then, you, of course, you take that opportunity, you know? And is he a better goalkeeper than Ramsdale? Yes, not by much, but yes, you know, and he does the things that Arsenal need him to do. The idea that you can rotate goalkeepers, I think, historically has been shown to... To, to be false you know I remember at Barcelona for example we had Ter Stegen and, and Claudio Bravo rotating you know, one was play, Bravo was playing the Champions League Ter Stegen in the league you know and they, they kind of did this dance for a year or two and they ended up hating each other you know and Claudio Bravo <laughs> went to Manchester City and, and in the end everyone knew that Ter Stegen was the better goalkeeper you know and he is still there you know five six years later and I mean there was a story with, with Jens Lehmann where he got um, subbed at half time when he was playing for Schalke and uh, he left the stadium early and had to get the tram home with this sort of kit on his shoulder and had to ask some stranger to pay for his tram, apparently. So <laughs> it, it, it often doesn't work out. You know, goalkeepers are, are funny breeds. They, you know, Gregor will, will tell you, you know, I, I think that of all the kind of players and football teams, they are a certain type of character. You know, perhaps they have even bigger egos than anyone else, perhaps in, apart from strikers, maybe. So the idea that they can be kind of just sort of rotated and, and swapped in and out, I think, has been shown to be to be deeply flawed and I suspect that Arteta as Alisson says is has found a way here for a relatively small amount of money to find a 10% improvement in a very key, yeah. key so, area so Raya's number one is what you're saying I think in a very political one. way <laughs> very very articulate very considered but David Raya is but the I number one I interviewed Bernlino about this because he went through exactly the same thing when he was number one and then Ramsdale arrived but he said before that he was almost rotating with Petr Cech, i.e. Petr Cech played slightly more than just the domestic games he played in Europe as well. And he said he spoke to the Arsenal, his Arsenal defenders about it and they all, they all said they hated it. They hated it having to cope with a, a new goalkeeper coming in because you build up relationships, you get to know what they do and don't do and how they talk. So the idea, apart from the fact, I think we're both agreed, Tom, that Raya is slightly the better keeper, it would make no sense to put his defence under pressure by having to deal with <clears throat> a, a, a new personality every every three weeks or something. That doesn't make any sense. You just don't do that. Absolutely. Now, I've definitely decided there, David Rea, number one, number one goalkeeper, so cue Aaron Ramsdale's return to the Arsenal team <laughs> for the next game. Uh, Gregor, I wanted to talk about a Tottenham player. The one that stood out most for me is another son of summer signing, James Madison. is a player that I actually kind of thought had slightly lost his moment with Leicester, um, was seen by lots of lots of people to be kind of part of their problems, their demise, not performing well enough. Got this move to Tottenham, and honestly, that was one of the best performances by a play a newer signing in a big game early in the season that I've seen for a long time. I thought he was absolutely outstanding. What did you think about him? Him and Tottenham. It just feels an incredibly good fit, doesn't it? It does, and I've said numerous times on this that it still you know, boggles the mind that. Spurs are the only team willing to, to, to pay £40 million pounds for mm. a guy whose numbers are as good as anyone outside the kind of maybe five players in the Premier League for throughout his whole time in the Premier League. Um, and again, you know, produced really good numbers in a relegated team last season. It's, anyway, um, he, it does feel like a perfect fit. And that, part of that is because of this sort of this new start and this sense of like joy, actually, about Spurs now. and and he, he represents that more than anyone. And another thing is, you know, 
the absence of Harry Kane now has hardly been felt because of a, a sort of new bromance between uh, James Madison and Son, who, you know, you thought Son would be sort of mourning the, the departure of Harry Kane more than anyone. And I think they've combined for nine of, of Spurs' 15 goals this season. Um, and look, you know, they play off, play off each other so brilliantly. Um, but Madison's part... Madison's bravery and the sort of the license he has to to roam to go really deep and get on the ball. Yes, we saw him make that that error for for Jesus's his chance to make it two 0 but he's done that all season. I've watched him at, at Bournemouth and he was in the first few minutes dropping into kind of a space and left back sometimes because Udogi would move inside. You'll roam anywhere to get mm. on the ball. He also look he's also making tackles. It seems to me a lot more and getting getting stuck in like he's nicking the ball back for the goals that they scored. Yeah. He just seems. More in, more intense about his play. There's a there's an added verve and energy to him. Whereas before he kind of gave off the vibe of the languid playmaker a bit more. Yeah, although I mean I, st- I do th- I think that part of that is the team he's playing in and the responsibility yeah. he has to have now. After that Bournemouth game, Postecoglou uh, made the point. It's not all about what he's doing uh, with the ball at his feet. He has he's doing a lot for us out of possession as well, and you have to do that in this team because the way that Spurs play is. You know, they get so so high up the pitch and they look to sustain attacks. Anything they lose the ball, let's get win it back as soon as possible. It's an enormous risk. You know, plays, they're playing with enormous risk because you know there's the space they're leaving behind. But Madison is a big part of that and trying to win the ball back very quickly when they lose it. Um, and he's you know I think was that four assists and two goals and he's in the start of the, since the start of the season. He's arguably been the signing of the summer. Alison, would you agree? Signing of the summer. He's up there, isn't he? I think, I think, I think it, the narrative works beautifully because he fits this new version of Spurs so well. And that mistake he did make, and Jesus who scored, uh, it was a poor mistake. But um, you know, for you, you know, without knowing that Postecoglou will have said to him, "Don't worry about it." You know, I'm glad you. I'm glad you were there to receive the ball. I'm glad. I'm glad you're getting involved. Just keep going. I love your bravery. And when you've got the backing of a coach like that, I mean, think about it. Madison is put up for every blooming interview, every every media opportunity. He did loads of stuff before when he signed, and he's he just seems to be constantly popping up in newspapers and on telly. He's just always there talking about it. Because there's a reason for that. The clubs don't let players speak so often unless they represent them in some way. And his enthusiasm for the project and the fact that he's new and represents the new this is, you know, this is another version of Spurs. This is post Harry Kane, but with a with a manager who um maybe coincidentally, but seems to sum up what Spurs fans think their team should be. And he's the epitome of it. So it's like feeds off itself. So the more he speaks, the more Madison speaks about how much he's enjoying the freedom, we will buy into the fact, well, he, we're seeing his face all the time. He must just be the creative force, the heartbeat of the team. And it just feeds off itself so that he, he has probably got now more confidence in himself than he's ever had before. He's never lacked that though he always wants to be centre stage But it's never like he's been, it's never been a brace quite this much well, well no he's never he's never played for a club like Spurs so, exactly. so, it so but he's played in big games, he's played for England he's played you know in cup finals for, for Leicester, he's, he's, he's played in big games and he's always wanted to be centre stage but there's a difference between wanting to be centre stage and actually Going and and being it <laughs> in in the North London derby. So this, uh, you know, he's what's he twenty seven. He's done a lot in his career, but this was a a big game for him too because in the biggest game, he actually had had the, one of the most telling impacts of anyone on the pitch. And you know, what, and Alice, what Alison's saying about you know, he represents the team. He said afterwards that Spurs are no longer Spursy. And you know that even that's quite. Quite it's a big bold. claim. It's a big claim. <laughs> in the like, social media age, when you things get clipped up and you get embarrassed um, by things, as we all know on this podcast, and particularly <laughs> when actually Spurs have the same number of points as they did at this point last season, which leads me perfectly onto the end of this segment. I'm going to say the word Tottenham, and you're all going to say a position in the table at the end of the season. I'm, I can go first with a different voice to pretend someone's asked me the question. Tottenham fourth, Allison fifth, Gregor fourth. Tom? Fifth. 
fourth and fifth Tottenham fans. And we were both there, so we're right. (laughs) Yes, that's true. Tottenham fans, let us know what you think on social media or get in touch with me on email tom.clark at thetimes.co.uk. You can also get in touch with more ideas and suggestions for the show. We love to hear your views. Uh, And make sure you're checking out all the best of the content on the Times website, as well as Tom and Alison's pieces from the Emirates. There's also a brilliant interview with Lou Macari. And we've got reports of the sad demise of Southend. So make sure you're subscribed to check it out. And stick with us because we're talking Chelsea and 8-0 win next. Hello, you're listening to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Chelsea fans, it's not good, is it? It's not good. Worst start in 45 years. And even worse, Gregor Robertson was there at Stamford Bridge. He's been moaning about them for months, months and months. How can they be this bad? How can they spend all this money? So what did me and James do? Like the fiendish editors we are, we thought we'd send him down to see you win. Surely, Aston Villa at home. It can't keep going on like this. Oh, yes, it can. 1-0, Ollie Watkins. It had it written all over it, especially with you there, Gregor. Tell us about it. Really is that bad, isn't it? I mean, it's just remarkable. Um, to see how I don't know the stage fright in front of goal, the sort of the poverty of quality in the final ball, uh, it's just remarkable to think you know how you can spend a billion pounds and still go backwards in basically in the space of a year. Um, having said all that, it was a peculiar game because you know you you felt Aston Villa plays plays such a high line. We've said this many times, uh, and it's very you know very risky. And the number of times Chelsea were had kind of one-on-one opportunities, just simple ball in behind. Some of them were, were you know, there was a late flag, but there were times where, you know, they were clean through one-on-one. Ben Chilwell, you had no confidence whatsoever he was going to finish. Ryan Sterling, the same. Uh, Nicholas Jackson made made one. I think he probably would have been offside. Again, very little confidence. There's just no sense when Chelsea are presented with an opportunity in front of goal that they're going to put it away. Is that throughout the ground then? Because I asked these guys about the Emirates and the atmosphere and things. Is that on the pitch that you think the players have got no confidence? Or, you know, we've all been there in football stadiums. Are there groans and moans? Are people getting off their seat when a player's clean yeah. through? Or are they just sat there going, he's yeah. not going to No, speak? I mean, like, look, there were boos at the end of the game, but Chelsea fans are, you know, very much want this to be a success. They want the, tor- the, cor- the corner to be turned. But the, the, the kind of number of stats that you, you, you read about Chelsea after... Uh, you know, after every kind of result now, are remarkable. It's 13 games since the since the turn of the year that they've drawn a blank. It's three games without a goal now as well. As you said, the worst start in 45 years since Graham Potter was sacked in April. They've won two games against two Premier League games against Bournemouth and Luton. Like in in 16, I think it's 18 now. Going back, they've won two games as well. So like it, Chelsea are, are a, a really bad team. <laughs> like over a long period of time, it's 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 remarkable. And again, they spent I, a billion pounds to do this. I would encourage you to check out Gregor's article online because that isn't his intro. Chelsea are a really <laughs> bad team. Although I would have applauded you for it. It's much more eloquent than that. But uh, Tom, I want to come to you on Chelsea because this is your first appearance on the pod this season, and we like to diversify opinions. Chelsea, a really <laughs> bad team. Would you agree? I, I mean, I just still can't believe Pochettino went there. You know, I, I just really Pochettino when he left PSG, everyone kind of around him was sort of saying he will never do this again you know he's he'll never join a club where there isn't a coherent strategy where the manager isn't you know fully in charge where the players signed you know don't match up to the kind of philosophy of the of the of the side and and yet he in my opinion chose the the arguably the second most dysfunctional club at the moment in Europe to follow that you know and this isn't Pochettino's I'll fault. Top, surely now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, overtaken PSG. Top of the that. league, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's, it's not Pochettino's fault, but equally, I just it's, it's such a it's such a big job there to kind of sort through all these players that have come in, all these new young players. I mean, you take Jackson for example, who Villarreal, you know, he, he he last season he had a brilliant end to the season, scored a load of goals in a very short space of time. But before that, you know, his his actual kind of history of scoring and, and playing at that kind of level was was pretty shallow really. And if you spoke to people at Villarreal, they were kind of saying, Yeah, he could be a top player, but we're not really sure because it's been such a short space of time that he's been performing like this. And it was a kind of decision for us to take this kind of money, what was it, forty million I think it's mm. you know, really good money for a club like Villarreal. 
And okay, he might end up being an 80, 90 million player, but equally, he might well not. And they were very surprised that a club like Chelsea kind of took that punt so early. And it just makes me think that all the other players they've signed, in a similar kind of way, just a lot of punts, a lot of, a lot of young players with big question marks. Might they be really top players in the future? Possibly. But a lot of players adjusting you know, to the Premier League, a lot of players adjusting to a new team, to this kind of level, to a new coach. Everything is new. Everything is uncertain. And the Premier League isn't a place where mm. you can do that. But these are all things we talked about with Graham Potter, isn't it? It's, the set, it's almost the same repeated. New players taking punts on young players, coaching a job that's perhaps not maybe beyond him, but certainly not what he's experienced before. And he didn't get the time. Is Pochettino going to get the time, do you think? The history of Todd Bowley, which we don't, you know, it's, it's not a lot, but suggests they won't wait around. You know, I, mean, I, I don't imagine Pochettino is going to get fired anytime soon, but it wouldn't surprise me if, if the yeah. pressure really cranks up before Christmas. Look, Martin, I mean, Sa- Martin Simon wrote that this morning. It also yeah. makes makes him look stupid. Makes yeah. Todd Bowley look stupid. This yeah. this is making him look very stupid. Which is what so owners he do. Wants then. To, he wants to deflect yeah. the, the attention to someone else and trying to turn the corner, and that's the only way they can do it because they have invested an extraordinary amount of money in potential, as Tom's saying there. Um, and you looked at like you looked at the midfield, you know, Caicedo and Fernandez, two hundred million pound plus players, like un- undoubtedly talented footballers, and but they went up against Kamara and Luis, who were twenty five million combined, and they were completely outshone for the whole game, like outmuscled, you know. There were times where Caicedo was trying to go in and win the ball of uh, Douglas Luis, and like bouncing off him. Mm. And sometimes Lewis was teasing him, and like we know that he's a great player, but you know, do you have to go and spend a hundred million pounds on two midfielders to to improve your team? Were there were there like, any? I don't think you do. Were there any bright sparks? You know, Pochettino, renowned as a good coach, obviously that's one of the reasons he was perhaps brought in. Tom was to talk about those you know players, those punts. If a guy has got experience in bringing through players that are a bit of a punt, you know, you could say at Tottenham they signed a lot of players and go, hmm, they've signed him, and then he turned them into a great player. Uh, were there any seeds of positivity, Gregor? Give Chelsea fans something to something to cling uh, on to. I'm looking at the, I'm looking at the team and Levi Colwell. He's 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 been impressive. Um, apart from that, no. They were Mudrick again. You know, it's his second start. Uh, there were flashes. He he beat Cash down the line once in the first half and whipped across a ball, uh, ball flashed the ball across the box. Someone should have been on the end of that. You know, he needs something like that to come off to get a kind of a goal contribution to lift his confidence because he looks, still looks bereft but after time he's running down dark alleyways lost possession countless times uh, Jackson was offside too much as I say they were outshone in midfield Conor Gallagher was, was almost invisible and he's wearing the captain's armband like, there are so many things about this no sorry the brightest spark was Sanchez and goals because without him it could have been embarrassing you, you know for all of us saying that Chelsea are creating chances and they're useless in front of goal you looked at the end of the game uh, at the shot count and it was 15-10 to 10 to Aston Villa. They had more on target as well. Aston Villa were really professional, brilliant brilliant defensively, but they were a threat on the break and they had more chances than Chelsea. And, and as I say, they, could have, they could, have, could have been two or three up in the first half and Sanchez made brilliant saves at 1-0 to, to, prevent it, you know, to prevent the game being put to bed as well. Most worrying of all, though, was that Pochettino was wearing this double-breasted <laughs> navy jacket which made him look like he was in a adaptation of an Agatha Christie you know the ones where there's a a rich kid on a yacht yeah and I don't actually probably, but yeah and they probably, I know what you they're mean. probably the murderer I mean there's a lot of people look like that at Stamford Bridge too. <laughs> the, uh, the Alison Rudd sartorial guide this is turning well, I had into a go, we had, I had a go at, at Postacone yeah, it's, it's only, only fair, fair that I have a go at hey, I'll tell you what I'm glad we've got our nicest shackets on Greg for, for <laughs> the no but it was a snow but I, I, I mean easy to laugh but seriously what made him wake up and think he wanted to look like that I mean this is a man struggling <laughs> maybe his, it's like the Manchester his, United his grey kit grey struggling. Kit. I've never seen him wear a double breasted navy I mean have you ever seen him dress like that before in terms of in terms of that identity point then taking it away from sartorial <laughs> uh, uh, judgments another thing he's talked about is discipline he talked about it before the game Gregor a man sent off and Nicholas Jackson booked in fact, he specifically spoke about Jackson, didn't he, before the game, saying, you're getting booked, what are you doing? Like, you know, calm down. And then he did the same thing again. He was booked for not backing away or... Yeah, he'd been, he'd been booked four times in five games and none of them were for a foul. I think the majority were for dissent. And, you know, Pochettino specifically addressed that in the press conference before the game and obviously warned them. Mm. And then he didn't back off from... Uh, Amy Martinez had a free kick, you know, in, you know, <laughs> 
in the penalty box basically and he didn't back off the 10 yards and was booked now he misses a game Gusto I, look I had some sympathy for Gusto because here we go defenders union well, I'm trying to win the ball right you, you could see I said it in my report it was, it was needless in that it was on the halfway line on the touch line and he didn't need to go in with such force but it was one of those where he, he kind of he clipped the top of the ball and then his, the, his force and the follow through was really really strong and he landed on on Dina's left ankle and when when the ref's going to uh, sent to the screen, it's always going to be it's always going to be a sending off. So that that did tilt because Chelsea started the second half quite well. And that did obviously tilt the uh, the game in Villa's favour. But you know, having said all that, I still think that Aston Villa had a really put in a really professional performance, and you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see that Chelsea lose this game. I still, uh, you know, if Chelsea hadn't scored in, haven't scored in two hundred eighty five minutes. I said in the piece it looked like they could have played another 285 minutes and still not found the net. You talk in your piece about that 12th place finish last season and a slight worry over what what this season might hold. I enjoyed the game with Tottenham so much that I'm going to play the same game with Chelsea, but I'm not going to ask where Chelsea are going to finish. I'm just going to I want to know whether you think they could finish in the top half. Gregor? Yeah, I mean they can finish in the top half. But you don't anything could happen. Will they? Go yeah, on, I think yes I think no. they will. I think they will. But you know, it, it, I said in this piece that you know Chelsea fans will have left Stamford Bridge thinking, "Have we actually bottomed out last season?" No. Or is it going to get that was the worst season in nearly in Premier League history? They finished twelfth. You know, it, could it be worse? It could be worse. But you know, it it could also Chelsea could get a few players back from injury. Pochettino could start to you know get a bit of chemistry yep, together, and they could they could move up the league. But Things like the top four, no chance. Top half, Alison? Possibly top half. Top half, possibly. Tom? Well, I mean, just looking at the fixtures they've got coming out. Look, look before December, they've got Burnley and, Burnley and Fulham next. Then after that, they've got Arsenal, Brentford, Spurs, City, Newcastle, Brighton and Man United. I mean, it could get a lot worse before it gets it could, better. Yeah. They could have quite a long way to, to, to make so up. So bottom half, then, <laughs> I was going to say. I think they'll get top half. But just, it could it could be could get a lot worse just, before Christmas. Now time for the every presenter's favourite bit on a bit of football punditry. We must talk about Aston Villa. Good win for them and bouncing back as Brighton did after slightly surprising Europa League defeats. Uh, lots of people very excited about both their seasons and then promptly made us look very stupid on Thursday's show after talking about the strength of the English game by both losing those <laughs> matches. But Villa, I mean, let's play that game. Where where what does the season hold for them? Six in the table at the minute. We talked a lot about them at the very start of the season. Haven't really discussed them since. Do they look all the things that a new Emery side look, Gregor? Well drilled, well organised, tough to beat. Yes, with the caveat that this high line is kind of is is pretty hairy. At times. There's, there's the defenders' union it, again. No, I mean it is. It's like there's so many times where the ball's clipped in behind and they're just praying for the offside flag. But they, because of the rules now, they have to retreat and they have to do their best to try and stop a goal being scored. Um, and that happened time and time again in this game, but it's well drilled. You know, they 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 they, they know what they're doing. There's times it's it's so risky, but their players are kind of edging up, playing that kind of that kind of thing. We are stepping up half a yard and then going back afterwards. Um, and as I said, Louise and Kamara were outstanding in midfield. Um, Diaby, the pace he's, he's he's added to the team, the sort of dynamism up front has been has been hugely important. Um, and Watkins, you know, he, he's been on a bit of a kind of a run. With I think he scored one in eleven before this. Before this, uh, I know. Going back to last delighted season, kept him in my game. fantasy football team as well. Absolutely buzzing. Hope and he, he goes on a big run now. It was a good, you know, it was a brilliant to reset himself after the first shot was blocked and and to get the finish away. Um, and they've got they've got strength on the bench too. They brought on Liam Bailey, brought brought on uh, Jacob Ramsey, who'd been out for a while. Um, Duran as well has made an impact. Yuri Tielemans came on. They do, you know. They made five changes for the game in midweek, um, and then went back to the team that beat Palace last weekend. And this, this is the best team, uh, but they have firepower up front now. So I, I absolutely think that they've they've got a chance of like competing for Europe, European spots once again. Tom, would you agree? Unai Emery, a manager, I'm sure you've followed his career quite a lot from your time uh, in Spain. Do you think this is a good fit for a club that are on the up, got aspirations to go into that top six contenders regularly? Is he a perfect fit for them? Yeah, it's a great fit. I mean, you look, you look at what Emery's done before. All his successes, you know, Sevilla, Villarreal, um, have come at that kind of level of club. I mean, Villa are a huge club, massive history, but in terms of where they are now, you know, they're sort of a, an outsider kind of top four sort of team trying to break in and, and win trophies. That's exactly where Emery is at. 
I mean, I always think these kind of games are perfect for Emery as a kind of coach. He's a meticulous planner, loves planning for a, for an opponent and sort of an upset, likes playing against bigger teams because, you know, it's the, the way he likes to kind of prepare his, his teams is, is very um, detailed analysis of, you know, how we adjusted to them, that kind of thing. Where Emery's teams, I think, have historically struggled more is against the kind of lower opponents in a way. And maybe that kind of speaks to whether they even struggled in midweek because... Sometimes it's when when his teams need to kind of get on the front foot and play their own way and put their own stamp on a game rather than reacting to the opposition. That's when they can they can struggle a bit. But I think Villa look really well organised, um, defensively good. I think, and if Watkins can, I mean that was a great finish. I thought, you know, it, yeah. it was. All, I don't know. It looked on TV like a sort of a real angle that maybe he shouldn't have scored from, you know. And and if they can get him firing and, and scoring fifteen twenty goals, then I think they'll be right up there. Excellent. Just news. to see the just to contrast the fans. trajectories of these two clubs, though, in 2023, Chelsea have won 25 points, which is tied with Everton bottom of teams who played last season and this season in the Premier League. And I think Villa only, I think only City have won more points. So mm. they, they've been, you know, the two clubs are going in opposite directions. Speaking of two clubs moving in opposite directions, Newcastle fans, we're finally there. An eight nil win. I'm sure you've been listening to this whole podcast thinking, how the hell did they not start the show with an eight nil win? For goodness sake, Martin Hardy. Uh, in Sheffield for us uh, a destruction plain and simple was the intro to his piece uh, and I think that's fair to say we all agree with him I'd, there's obviously so much we could talk about this game we could pick over all the goals the mistakes Gregor I'm sure we could you've got sleepless nights over some of that defending particularly from the set pieces pretty abysmal but I just want to talk about what an 8-0 win actually means in the context of football I want to start with Newcastle good week for them got a point in the Champions League against AC Milan they go to a team where they're expected to win and they produce a performance like this that is so ruthless. Eddie Howe making changes at the end where, you know, a bit like a boxing match, you're going, Eddie, they're done. Stop it. Leave them alone. Come on. Be nice. And he's sending on more players, sending on Isaac, etc. Alison, is this and is this a ruthless Eddie Howe and a ruthless Newcastle who just will not will not stop until they're really taken seriously as a top six, top four team? Yeah, no, I think you probably did see a bit of that Linton Eddie Howe's eyes actually that I doubt there's any manager of a Premier League team who actually ever feels sorry for the opponent but occasionally you sense that the objective once the game is won is to rest players because you don't need them because you've got the game won uh, to think, think about just think about what's coming next and there's no particular desire to pile on the misery but I did get the impression with Eddie how he quite he wanted it to go to double figures he yeah. could see records in front of his eyes he could see glory and 10-0 10 nil. Ten nil yeah, was what he, we were he needed, all thinking he needed 10 nil to make to, I mean he, he, he broke the record in the sense that there were eight different players on the score sheet um, so yes I, di I did think I think it's hurt him probably because a lot of the narrative um the start of this campaign has been that they're going to struggle combining Europe and another assault on a top four finish that they're nouveau riche they haven't quite got the depth of experience to cope with elite football and they did have a jittery patch but they weren't embarrassed in the Champions League and and then to go from that to scoring sack for goals which they don't generally do I mean last season they were quite it was quite could be quite boring watching Newcastle um, so yes this was I, you, I, I saw it I know he's got blue eyes and blue eyes tend to look a bit more de devilish don't they Tom Clark yes, how they do. dare you they do how but um, I think they do but um, I've got blue eyes too but um, <laughs> yeah I could see I could see he was if anything he was slightly cross it was only 8-0 because it was one of those weird games where actually Sheffield United started well, did start well. You thought this was going to be a competitive match. And once once it, they probably felt it was going against them, a couple of refereeing decisions went against them. They started to look like there's no way they're going to win it. They lost all shape completely. And I think most teams would have scored a, a, a lot of goals against them once that had happened. They were... They were they were more, I think they were more abysmal than Bournemouth were at Anfield when they lost 9-0, which is the most recent big, big differential I've been to. Mm. It was really bad, really, really bad. And 
I honestly, I think possibly Eddie Howe went to bed thinking, oh, could have been more. It could have been more. Gregor, touching on some of Alison's themes there that she mentioned at the end with Sheffield United and Paul Heckingbottom after the game, I thought it was quite interesting in his uh, TV interview that he talked about some of the things Alison said. We started quite well, conceded a few early goals, and then it seemed to fall apart. But he was also asked, you know, come on, Paul, this was 8-0. This is fairly disastrous. And he kind of said, well... We've only it's only in three points we've only lost a game. It's only the same as losing two nil in that sense. We'll pick ourselves up, etc., etc. He's a manager under pressure, of course. Is he right? Or when you're in a dressing room at any level, when you've lo- if you've lost eight, that's disastrous. Yeah, he's putting on a brave face there. I mean, I mean he's right <laughs> technically speaking, but the atmosphere at training today or tomorrow, for and tomorrow, will be like it'll be like a morgue, and. You know, his his job is to is to try and put that straight away in the dustbin and move on. Um, but you're right, he is under pressure. If you know, talk about Chris Wilder possibly mm. returning before this game, I have huge sympathy for Paul Eckenbottom though, because yeah. Sheffield United are a basket case. Yeah. Well, this is my this was going to be my next point because again, I keep referring to our preview show because we tried to talk at length about all the teams, and this was one of the things we talked about. Was you kind of your assessment was that they were the worst placed. Of all the promoted teams coming up, even you know, worse than Luton, who everyone was like, "Oh, plucky Luton, this is going to be fun," but Sheffield United are. This is beyond on the pitch and beyond Paul Heckingbottom, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, they they, they started the season, and they you know, I, I visited the club just before the the week before the, the season started, and they trained. I think they had fifteen fit outfield fit outfield players, and four of them were were kids who'd never played academy kids. Um, they have since made some signings. They signed Hamer. They signed Archer. They brought McAtee back from Man City. Uh, Sousa, the midfielder. But they all arrived like what's you know a month ago. Mm. They had no pre- no time to work with them in pre-season. And even still, looking at the team it lo- and the squad, it looks light. It it was a miracle that they were promoted. People think that you know they're because they came down two years ago. They've still got parachute payments. Mm. They they had had the, the the nucleus of a squad who had played in the Premier League before. That this was some kind of you know. It was easy, but that was that's nonsense. Some of the stuff that they had to deal with behind the scenes, uh, and the lack of funds for, um, from their owner, uh, Prince Abdullah, you know, a, a Saudi who seems to have no money. Uh, it was a miracle that they were promoted, and all that kind of chaos was was kind of tumbled into the start of the season as well. So the, as they were thought, they were they they've actually performed pretty admirably given all that. Mm. Um, Certainly, quite nearly, solid. nearly beat Tottenham. Of well, course, let's quite, remember they look quite yeah. solid defensively a lot of the time. Mm. They just they just have have nothing up front. Sometimes they were hitting. You know, a lot of the goals have been like a worldie from Hamer, or they really hit shots on target. That seemed to be their problem. Obviously, then this comes along and you think, where do we go next? It's they it, they were as Alison said, they were dragged around. There were huge spaces everywhere. Players looked scared to go and close anyone down because it felt like the there was no cohesion and Paul Eckenbottom said that he said it was our organisation which which kind of which started the started this kind of absolutely disastrous uh, afternoon for them we've, we've done a lot of looking at the table and predictions for the future but looking at the table now the bottom three Luton, Burnley and Sheffield United the three promoted teams one point each Luton getting their first point with their, that draw against Wolves on Saturday which is great for them of course but it still does leave all three teams isolated at the bottom, which I think, thinking about it, is is quite rare in recent seasons. There's normally one promoted team that has a little bit of a start and there's a little bit of um, uh, hope around them. Tom, why is this? What is is it that the three teams kind of performed miracles last season in the Championship, like Greg is talking about? Obviously, Burnley did very well in the Championship last season. Is this a case that, that was the still gap- no mean feat as well, though? Yeah, absolutely. Again, people think that should that should have happened, but the turnover and the change, and the change of style, style and everything yeah, that went on absolutely. are three very quite kind of unique cases. So I think that's part of it. Yeah, is is it Tom? A, what do you think? Is <laughs> Sorry. It a, you know, we might have next season clubs like Leicester coming back up potentially. Which might be a different case, Tom. Is is the gap bigger? Is it is it getting harder? Is it just more more ruthless people like Eddie Howe just making it more difficult for you to pick up points at home? What is it? Yeah, I, mean, I think there are a few factors, and I I, I I take the kind of macro picture about Sheffield United, but I also think it's worth saying that they the defending yesterday was was absolutely abysmal. Like I, I just I thought that they you, you watch Premier League teams sometimes play against kind of you know League Two teams or Conference sides in the FA Cup or something, and you think this is a complete mismatch. 
but just the kind of basic fundamentals of aggression and getting tight, following runners, will we'll, we'll even a contest out you know, enough. I think Sheffield United just, just didn't do any of those basics yesterday. And whether they got tired in the second half and just stopped doing those things, but the amount of space Newcastle players had to just pick a pass, run through, score, they were, they were really just you know, attacking at complete at will. Um, I think on the wider picture, I guess, you know, it's kind of like every fairy tale seems like it has a sort of a nightmare ending. Like something like Luton, you know, it's, it's brilliant. You know, you get up, but then you have to put up with this kind of season in the Premier League where, where you know, you have a, a really difficult year in Sheffield United as well. And I think also you have to realise that, you know, the top teams in the Premier League now are better than they've ever been. You know, that kind of top five or top six, if you like, have more money, more strength. They can hire the best coaches in the world. They can sign the best players in Europe. You know, you have... Uh, you know Newcastle, Spurs, Brighton. These kind of teams just plucking the kind of best players from Barcelona, from Sevilla, from Juventus, whatever. And those sides, you know, have more depth and more quality than ever. So these teams that come up from the Championship, you have to be very ready for the Premier League. You know, and it feels now, and Gregor will know better than me, but it feels now that the Championship is is quite well stocked with five or six quite big clubs that you might otherwise normally think would be with their resources in the Premier League and there are perhaps three or four in the Premier League that may be the reverse and I think they're getting some punishment from the top teams and I wouldn't be surprised if we see three or four more results like this against Newcastle, Liverpool, City who just mm. have such attacking quality that they're going to put these teams to the sword. Alison, would you agree? More of this to come potentially for this promoted three? More more results like this? Well, The, pro- the problem this year, I think, is that Luton have come up expecting to go straight back down. I don't think there's, a, there's no aspiration there. That they is. haven't got the money. They haven't got the money, and the the whole vibe is one of. But they've not. They don't have the money. The they didn't have money to to win promotion. Mm. They had the, they had a, like the fourth the fourth lowest budget in the championship. So they they absolutely have aspirations to to stay in the Premier League. They just feel that they're not going to go and spend all the money that they earn from this Premier from promotion in doing so they feel like they're going to do it the same way that they've risen from League 2 which is not, there's nothing wrong with that because that's good yeah, planning they, they, they in, might a, be in, wrong. A, in a world where <laughs> we see will. bad management of football clubs up and down the pyramid there's nothing wrong with that is there? No and they have a bigger picture they have a new stadium to fund it's like as I say there's nothing wrong with, with them feeling that they can do it their way as they say it but it, the likelihood is they'll be wrong but at least they'll be in, in, a, in a sound financial position to you know, to to have a a, a successful future and a successful well, long term future. Then. The aspiration is to continue being. No, but they still well, believe. But I don't think. I don't think they genuinely think they've got what they need to stay up. Do you think Burnley do beating no, Manchester Burnley, United Burnley's this weekend one 0 No, Burnley's problem is that they think they can play the style of football they played to get out the championship, and they can carry on playing it. And they they need to be more pragmatic, I think. But that's that. aspirational as well, isn't it? That's. Their aspiration is to to stick with it. You know, we're praising Ange Postecoglou for sticking to his methods, sticking to his guns. It's a North London derby. But I'm he going wouldn't to be allowed to do that if they weren't winning a lot of games, would they? Mm-hmm. I mean, I just I just feel I just feel Burnley being a little bit fantasy. I don't think they're the head in the clouds slightly. I think Luton accept that they haven't got the fu- the the funding to do it. And the team I would have said was most likely to escape the drop would be Sheffield United because I had been impressed with their stoicism and their realism and their pragmatism. They, they've made no attempt to be anything other than what they are and to try and be very well organised. And they've, they've not been embarrassed by any club up until the Newcastle game. And it felt like, you know, what's going to get you out the bottom three? It's going to be... Knowing who you, understanding your limitations and being pragmatic, I still don't think it's certain they will go down because they might well change the manager. And not that I've got anything against Heckingbottom, but sometimes, as with Bournemouth's 9 0 defeat to Liverpool, change of management just changed the mindset at the club and they decided to use a very embarrassing moment to build and build and build. And they did. That's what they did. You can use in a moment of embarrassment to get yourself out of trouble. So exactly the same could very well happen with Sheffield United, who have recent experience of the Premier League, poorly run club, absolutely. But that you know, the the that when they, when they play well, they've got the stadium to give them backing. It's 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 an intense atmosphere there that can get you over the line in some close games as well. So I don't. I, even though they just lost 8-0 I would say I'd, I, 
can see Sheffield United escaping more than the other two. Bit of hope really? for Sheffield United fans from Alison Rudd. Lovely. That's just what we need on a Monday morning. Tom Allnut, you mentioned uh, fairy tales into a nightmare. Sounds just like a novel, which leads me perfectly on to the final question uh, of the show. <laughs> A nice light-hearted moment from a Sheffield United fan who, as uh, Bruno Gamaro celebrated Newcastle's seventh goal, the camera panned to the crowd and a Sheffield United fan was spotted, getting out a book and thinking, well, sod this, I'm just going to have a little quick read. And so I wanted to know if you've ever done anything similar. Obviously, when you're working away for the Times, you're reporting, you're making notes, you're checking stats and facts. But as a fan, ever been to a game and just been so dismayed that you thought, actually, this is pretty bad. I'll go first because being a Lincoln City fan, I definitely have. In fact, so much so that my dad, because we grew up in Manchester and we'd go to away games quite often, we'd go with some of his pals and we'd often sit in the home end of Stockport, Halifax, you know, Berry, all these clubs. Uh, and my first few games, I think we, I saw Lincoln lose 7-0 and 5-0, both against Stockport County. And I can remember being sat there as a young lad and my dad started sarcastically cheering really enthusiastically he's not a particularly you know emotional man and he stood up going yeah go on the boys and I was thinking you're hang on that's the wrong team it's a very confusing lesson for a young man <laughs> uh, so once I kind of got to 12 I was like dad can we start sitting actually with the away fans because I'm really struggling to get my head around this so sarcastic support is one I've been used to but uh, anyone ever taken a book to a game and thought do you know what sod this Alison Taking no, one of your own books, dished out a few of your novels well, to everyone. I do that all the time, you know. Got to keep the brand going. But um, no, I used to take a novel when I covered Wimbledon because it was a way of hogging a desk. So it was like the, the like beach. a sun lounger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was put, put my towel down. I would. I actually have cycled to Wimbledon with a novel and a pot plant. What? And put them oh and a God. cardigan and a cardigan. Very Wimbledon, isn't it? I'm so I glad put, I asked I this put, question. Now. I put the. The novel and the pot plant on the desk and, and laid an old cardigan that I don't mind being Did you have the pot plant in a back. basket at the front of your <laughs> bike? No, no, I don't cycle like that. But And then put, then put the cardigan on the back of the chair. So I got the seat that I wanted in, which is always an overcrowded press room at Wimbledon. It's not as necessary now because you pay for a... I think you should have kept it going. The pot plant. Alison, <laughs> oh, Alison's here. Everyone walks in. Oh, Rod's here again. Bloody hell, she's bought the cactus this time. She can't be in a good mood. Well, it was famous for a brief period that Oh, that's that must be Alison's desk. There but it go. worked. I got the desk I wanted. But no, I've never taken a novel. I mean, that's why they sell programmes, isn't it? So you can bury your head in the programme when it gets too awful. Yeah, it, or if they don't sell a programme, you can always subscribe to the Times app to make sure you've got it on your phone. All of Good. the best journals. Very nice. Thank you, everyone. Smooth, Thank yeah. you. Crap joke to start with. <laughs> Good little link to end with. We'll leave it there. Tom Holner, Alison Rudd, Gregor Robson. Thank you very much for joining me on this Monday. Loads to discuss. If we've not covered your team, get in touch and have a moan and we'll make sure we'll do it on Thursday's show or in the next coming weeks. We'll be back on Thursday with Martin Samuel, Johnny Northcroft and Gregor. So we'll see you then.